Chapter Ten, Part Two of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Roman Nose addressed a few words to the mounted warriors, and almost immediately afterward, the dismounted Indians surrounding the island poured a perfect shower of bullets into the midst of Forsyth's little party. Realizing that a crisis was at hand and hot work was before him, Forsyth told his men to reload every rifle and to take and load the rifles of the killed and wounded of the party and not to fire a shot until he ordered to do so. A few moments the galling fire of the Indians rendered it impossible for any of the scouts to raise or expose any part of their person. This was precisely the effect which the Indians desired to produce by the fire of their riflemen. It was this that the mounted warriors under the leadership of Roman Nose were waiting for. The Indians had planned their assault in a manner very similar to that usually adopted by civilized troops in assailing a fortified place. The fire of the Indian riflemen performed the part of the artillery on such occasions in silencing the fire of the besieged and preparing the way for the assaulting column. Seeing that the little garrison was stunned by the heavy fire of the dismounted Indians, and rightly judging that now, if ever, was the proper time to charge them, Roman Nose and his band of mounted warriors, with a wild ringing war-whoop, echoed by the women and children on the hills, started forward. On they came, presenting even to the brave men awaiting the charge a most superb sight. Brandishing their guns, echoing back the cries of encouragement of their women and children on the surrounding hills, and confident of victory, they rode bravely and recklessly into the assault. Soon they were within the range of the rifles of their friends, and of course the dismounted Indians had to slacken their fire for fear of hitting their own warriors. This was the opportunity for the scouts, and they were not slow to seize it. Now, shouted Forsyth, now, echoed Beecher, McCall, and Grover, and the scouts springing to their knees and casting their eyes coolly along the barrels of their rifles, opened on the advancing savages as deadly a fire as the same number of men ever yet sent forth from an equal number of rifles. Unchecked, undaunted, on dashed the warriors, steadily rang the clear, sharp reports of the rifles of the frontiersmen, Roman knows the chief is seen to fall dead from his horse, then medicine man is killed, and for an instant the column of braves, now within ten feet of the scouts, hesitates, falters. A ringing cheer from the scouts perceived the effect of their well-directed fire, and the Indians began to break and scatter in every direction, unwilling to rush to a hand-to-hand -hand struggle with the men who, although outnumbered, yet knew how to make such effective use of their rifles. A few more shots from the frontiersmen and the Indians are forced back beyond range, and their first attack ends in defeat. Forsyth turns to Grover anxiously and inquires, Can they do better than that, Grover? I've been on the plains, General, since I was a boy, and never saw such a charge as that before. I think they have done their level best, was the reply. All right, responds Sandy. Then we are good for them. So close did the advanced warriors of the attacking column come in the charge that several of their dead bodies now lay within a few feet of the entrenchments. 
the scouts had also suffered a heavy loss in this attack. The greatest and most irreparable was that of Lieutenant Beecher, who was mortally wounded and died at sunset of that day. He was one of the most reliable and efficient officers doing duty on the plains, modest, energetic, and ambitious in his profession. Had he lived, undoubtedly would have had a brilliant future before him, and had opportunities such as it is offered by a great war as ever occurred, Lieutenant Beecher would have without a doubt achieved great distinction. The Indians still kept up a continuous fire from their dismounted warriors, but as the scouts by this time were well covered by their miniature earthworks, it did little execution. At two o'clock in the afternoon, the savages again attempted to carry the island by a mounted charge and again at sunset, but having been deprived of their best and most fearless leader by the fall of Roman Nose, they were not so daring or impulsive as in the first charge, and were both times repulsed with heavy losses. At dark, they ceased firing and withdrew their forces for the night. This gave the little garrison on the island an opportunity to take a breathing spell, and Forsyth to review the situation and sum up how he had fared. The result was not consoling. His trusted Lieutenant Beecher was lying dead by his side. His surgeon, Movers, was mortally wounded. Two of his men killed, four mortally wounded, four severely, and ten slightly. Here, out of a total of fifty-one, were twenty-three killed and wounded. His own condition, his right thigh fearfully lacerated and his left leg badly broken, only rendered the other discouraging circumstances doubly so. As before stated, the Indians had killed all of his horses early in the fight. His supplies were exhausted, and there was no way of dressing the wounds of himself or comrades, as the medical stores had been captured by the Indians. He was about 110 miles from the nearest post, and the savages were all around him. The outlook could scarcely have been less cheering, but Forsyth's disposition and pluck incline him to speculate more upon that which is, or may be gained, than to repine at that which is irrevocably lost. This predominant trait in his character now came into good play. Instead of wasting time in vain regrets over the advantages gained by his enemies, he quietly set about looking upon the chances in his favor, and let the subject be what it may, I will match Sandy against any equal number for making a favorable showing of the side which he exposes and advocates. To his credit account, he congratulated himself and comrades first upon the fact that they had beaten off their foes, Second, water could be had inside their entrenchments by digging a few feet below the surface. Then for food, horse and mule meat. To use Sandy's expression, was lying around loose in any quantity. And last but most important of all, he had plenty of ammunition. Upon these circumstances and facts, Forsyth built high hopes of successfully contending against any renewed assault of the savages. Two men. Trudeau and Stillwell, both good scouts and familiar with the plains, were selected to endeavor to make their way through the cordon of Indians and proceed to Fort Wallace, 110 miles distant, and report the condition of Forsyth and party and act as guides to the troops, which would be at once sent to the relief of the besieged scouts.
It was a perilous mission, and called for the display of intrepid daring, cool judgment, and unflinching resolution, besides a thorough knowledge of the country, as much of their journey would necessarily be made during the darkness of night, to avoid discovery by wandering bands of Indians who no doubt would be on the alert to intercept just a party going for relief. Forsyth's selection of the two men named was a judicious one. Stillwell, I afterwards knew well, having employed him as a scout with my command for a long period, and the time referred to, however, he was a mere beardless boy of perhaps nineteen years, possessing a trim, lithe figure, which was set off to great advantage by the jaunty suit of buckskin which he wore, cut and fringed according to the true style of the frontiersman. In his waist belt he carried a large-sized revolver and hunting knife, these, with his rifle, constituted his equipment. A capital shot, whether afoot or on horseback, and a perfect horseman, this beardless boy on more than one occasion proved himself a dangerous foe to the wily red man. We shall not take final leave of Stillwell in this chapter. These two men, Trudeau and Stillwell, after receiving Forsyth's instructions in regards to their dangerous errand, and being provided with his compass and map, started as soon as it was sufficiently dark on their long, weary tramp over a wild, desert country thickly infested with deadly enemies. After their departure, the wounded were brought in, the dead animals unsaddled, and the horse blankets used to make the wounded as comfortable as possible. The earthworks were strengthened by using the dead animals and saddles, a well was dug inside the entrenchments, and large quantities of horse and mule meat were cut up and buried in the sand to prevent it from putrefying. It began to rain, and the wounded were rendered less feverish by their involuntary but welcome bath. As it was expected, the night passed without incident or disturbance from the savages, but early the next morning the fight was renewed by the Indians, again surrounding the island as before, and opening fire from the rifles of their dismounted warriors. They did not attempt to charge the island as they had done the previous day, when their attempts in this direction had cost them too dearly, but they were none the less determined and eager to overpower the little band which had been the cause of such heavy loss to them already. The scouts, thanks to their efforts during the night, were now well protected, and suffered but little from the fire of the Indians, while the latter, being more exposed, paid the penalty whenever affording the scouts a chance with their rifles. The day was spent without any decided demonstration on the part of the red man, except to keep up as constant a fire as possible on the scouts, and to endeavor to provoke the latter to reply as often as possible, the object, no doubt, being to induce the frontiersmen to exhaust their supply of ammunition, but they were not to be led into this trap. Each cartridge they estimated as worth to them one Indian, and nothing less would satisfy them. On the night of the 18th, two more men were selected to proceed to Fort Wallace, as it was not known whether Trudeau and Stidwell had made their way safely through the Indian lines or not. The last two selected, however, failed to elude the watchful eye of the Indians, and were driven back to the island. This place to gloomy look on the probable fate of Trudeau and Stillwell, and left the little garrison in anxious doubt, 
not only as to the safety of the two daring messengers, but as to their own final relief. On the morning of the 19th, the Indians promptly renewed the conflict, but with less energy than before. They evidently did not desire or intend to come too close to the quarters again with their less numerous but more determined antagonists, but aimed on at the previous day to provoke harmless fire from the scouts, and then, after exhausting their ammunition in this manner, overwhelm them in mass by numbers and finish them with tomahawks and scalping knives. This style of tactics did not operate as desired, but there is little doubt that some of the Indians who had participated in the massacre of Fetterman and his party a few months before, when the three officers and 91 men were killed outright, were also present and took part in the attack upon Forsyth and his party, and they must have been not a little surprised to witness the stubborn defiance offered by this little party, which even at the beginning numbered but little over fifty men. About noon, the women and children who had been constant and excited spectators of the fight from the neighboring hilltops began to withdraw. It is rare indeed that in an attack by Indians their women and children are seen. They are usually sent to a place of safety until the result of the contest is known. But in this instance, with the overwhelming numbers of savages and the recollection of the massacre of Fetterman and his party, there seemed that the Indians to be but one result expected, and that a complete, perhaps bloodless victory for them, and the women and children were permitted to gather as witness of their triumph, and perhaps at the close would be allowed to take part by torturing those of the white men who should be taken alive. The withdrawal of the women and children regarded as a favorable sign by the scouts. Soon after, and as a last resort, the Indians endeavored to hold a parley with foresight by means of a white flag. But this device was too shallow and of too common adoption to attract the frontiersmen, the object simply being to accomplish by stratagem and perfidy what they had failed in by superior numbers and open warfare. Everything now seemed to indicate that the Indians had enough of the fight, and during the night of the third day, it was plainly evident that they had about decided to withdraw from the contest. Forsyth now wrote the following dispatch, and after nightfall, confident it is to be two of his best men, Donovan and Plyley, and they, notwithstanding the discouraging result of the last attempt, set out to try and get through to Fort Wallace with it, which they successfully accomplished. On Delaware Creek, Republican River, September 19, 1868. To Colonel Bankhead, or Commanding Officer, Fort Wallace. I sent you two messengers on the night of the 17th instant informing you of my critical condition. I tried to send two more last night, but they did not succeed in passing the Indian pickets and returned. If the others have not arrived, then hasten at once to my assistance. I have eight badly wounded and ten slightly wounded men to take in, and every animal I had was killed save seven, which the Indians stampeded. Lieutenant Beecher is dead, and acting assistant Surgeon Movers probably cannot live the night out. He was hit in the head Thursday, and has spoken but one rational word since. I am wounded in two places, in the right thigh and my left leg broken below the knee. The Cheyenne numbered 450 or more. Mr. Grover says they never fought so before. 
They were splendidly armed with Spencer and Henry rifles. We killed at least thirty-five of them and wounded many more, besides killing and wounding a quantity of their stock. They carried off most of their kill during the night, but three of their men fell into our hands. I am on a little island and have still plenty of ammunition left. We are living on mule and horse meat and are entirely out of rations. If it was not for so many wounded, I would come in and take the chances of whipping them if attacked. They are evidently sick of their bargain. I had two of the members of my company killed on the 17th, namely William Wilson and George W. Colner. You had better start with not less than 75 men and bring all the wagons and ambulances you can spare. Bring a six-pound howitzer with you. I can hold out here for six days longer if absolutely necessary, but please lose no time. Very respectively, your obedient servant, George A. Forsyth, U.S. Army, Commanding Company, Scouts. P.S. My surgeon, having been mortally wounded, none of my wounded have had their wounds dressed yet, so please bring out a surgeon with you. A small party of warriors remained in the vicinity, watching the movements of the scouts. The main body, however, had departed. The well-men, relieved of the constant watching and fighting, were now able to give some attention to the wounded. Their injuries, which had grown very painful, were rudely dressed. Soup was made out of horse flesh, and shelters were constructed, protecting them from the heat, damp, and wind. On the sixth day, the wounds of the men began to exhibit more decided and alarming signs of neglect. Maggots infested them, and the first traces of gangrene had set in. To multiply the discomforts of the situation, the entire party was almost overpowered by the intolerable stench created by the decomposing bodies of the dead horses. Their supply was nearly exhausted. Under these trying circumstances, Forsyth assembled his men. He told them they knew their situation as well as he. There were those who were helpless, but aid must not be expected too soon. It might be difficult for the messengers to reach the fort, or there might be some delay by their losing their way. Those who wished to go should do so, and leave the rest to take their chances. With one voice they resolved to stay, and if all hope vanished, they die together. At last the supply of jerked horse meat was exhausted, and the chances of getting more were gone. By this time the carcasses of the animals were a mass of corruption. There was no alternative. Strips of putrid flesh were cut and eaten. The effect of this offensive diet was nauseating in the extreme. An experiment was made with a view of improving the unpalatable flesh, using gunpowder as salt, but to no purpose. The men allayed only their extreme cravings of hunger, trusting that supper might reach them before all was over. On the morning of September 25th, the sun rose on Forsyth and his famished party with unusual splendor, and the bright colors of the morning horizon seemed like a rainbow of promise to their weary, longing spirits. Hope, grown faint with long waiting, gathered renewed strength from the brightness of nature. The solitary plain receding in all directions possessed a deeper interest than ever before. 
though it still showed no signs of life and presented the same monotonous expanse upon which the heroic band had gazed for so long and many trying days across the dim and indefinable distance which swept in all directions the eye often wandered and wondered what might be the revelations of the next moment suddenly several dark figures appeared faintly on the horizon the objects were moving the question uppermost in the minds of all was are they savages or messengers of relief as on such occasions of anxiety and suspense time wore heavily minutes seemed like hours yet each moment brought the sufferers nearer the realization whether this was their doom or their escape therefrom over an hour had elapsed since the objects first came in sight and yet the mystery remained unsolved slowly but surely they developed themselves until finally they approached sufficiently near for their characters friends or foes to be unmistakably established to the joy of the weary watchers the parties approaching proved to be troops relief was at hand the dangers and anxieties of the past few days were ended and death either by starvation or torture at the hands of the savages no longer stared them in the face the strong set up a shout such as men seldom utter it was the unburdening of the heart of the weight of despair the wounded lifted their fevered forms and fixed their glaring eyes upon the now rapidly approaching succor and in their delirium involuntarily but feebly reiterated the acclamations of their comrades the troops arriving for the relief were a detachment from fort wallace under the command of colonel carpenter of the regular cavalry and had started from the fort promptly upon the arrival of trudeau and stillwell with intelligence of the condition and peril in which forsyth and his party were when Colonel Carpenter and his men reached the island, they found its defenders in a most pitiable condition. Yet the survivors were determined to be plucky to the last. Forsyth himself, with rather indifferent success, affected to be reading an old novel that he had discovered in a saddlebag. But Colonel Carpenter said his voice was a little unsteady and his eyes somewhat dim when he held out his hand to Carpenter and bade him a welcome to beecher's island a name that has since been given to the battleground during the fight foresight counted thirty-two dead indians within rifle range of the island twelve indian bodies were subsequently discovered in one pit and five in another the indians themselves confessed to loss of about seventy-five killed in action and when their proclivity for concealing or diminishing the number of their slain in battle is considered we can readily believe that their actual loss in the fight must have been much greater than they would have had us believe. Of the scouts, Lieutenant Beecher, Surgeon Movers, and six of the men were either killed outright or died of their wounds. Eight more were disabled for life. Of the remaining twelve who were wounded, nearly all recovered completely. During the fight, innumerable interesting incidents occurred, some laughable and some serious. On the first day of the conflict, a number of young Indian boys from 15 to 18 years of age crawled up and shot about 50 arrows into the circle in which the scouts lay. 
one of these arrows struck one of the men frank harrington full in the forehead not being able to pull it out one of his companions lying in the same hole with him cut off the arrow with his knife leaving the iron arrowhead sticking from his frontal bone in a moment a bullet struck him in the side of the head glancing across his forehead impinged upon the arrowhead and the two fastened together fell to the ground a queer but successful piece of amateur surgery harrington wrapped a cloth around his head which bled profusely and continued fighting as if nothing had happened howard morton another of the scouts was struck in the head by a bullet which finally lodged in the rear of one of his eyes completely destroying its sight forever but morton never faltered but fought bravely until the savages finally withdrew hudson farley a young stripling of only eighteen whose father was mortally wounded in the first day's fight was shot through the shoulder yet never mentioned the fact until dark when the list of wounded was called for mccall the first sergeant villette clark farley the elder and others who were wounded continue to bear their full share of the fight notwithstanding their great sufferings until the indians finally gave up and withdrew these incidents of which many similar ones might be told only go to show how remarkable character of the men who composed forsyth's party considering this engagement in all its details and with all its attendant circumstances Remembering that Forsyth's party, including himself, numbered all but fifty-one men, and that the Indians numbered about seventeen to one, this fight was one of the most remarkable, and at the same time successful contests in which our forces on the plains have ever been engaged. The whole affair, from the moment of the first shot, was fired, until the beleaguered party was finally relieved by Colonel Carpenter's command, was wonderfully an exhibition of daring courage stubborn bravery and heroic endurance under circumstances of greatest peril and exposure in all probability there will never occur in our future hostilities with the savage tribes of the west a struggle the equal of that in which we were engaged the heroic men who defended so bravely beecher's island Forsyth, the gallant leader after a long period of suffering and leading the life of an invalid for nearly two years finally recovered from the effects of his severe wounds and is now i am happy to say as good as new contently awaiting the next war to give him renewed excitement End of chapter ten part two